Find that neighborhood that's your own. And how do you create the most effective circle and dialogue and engagement that allows people to really understand that place and to think of ways to take care of this place? How do we create a, a network to talk to landowners and try and catch them in places before they just get frustrated and they just put a sign out there and someone comes and pays them everything they want and then some. It's pretty, pretty attractive and, and I worry in a year like this, that's gonna be real attractive. And so I, I think our work is as pressing as it was when we began. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges, successes, and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the Life in the Land films in their entirety, and I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we're speaking with Bill Milton. Bill and his wife, Dana, run a cattle ranch just northeast of the town of Roundup in central Montana, an hour north of Billings and an hour south of the Missouri River. The landscape is a beautiful expanse of openness, meaning not a whole lot of man-made structures. Grasslands, white clay bluffs, and coolies that drop unexpectedly down into the ground make for great wildlife corridors for migrating pronghorn, elk, migratory birds, insects, and fish and turtle species in the rivers. The patchwork of both public and private land here is largely grazing rangeland for cattle. Bill Milton grew up on a ranch further west in Montana, but he and Dana have been here at the Milton Ranch since the 70s. They have always strived to find symbiotic relationships amongst all life on the land. And this means being involved in a lot of efforts that involve collaboration between agriculture, agency, and conservation interests. Bill was a founding board member of the Montana Land Reliance and participates in many working groups in central Montana, including the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition, Winnet Aces, the CMR Community Working Group, and the Muscleshell Valley Community Foundation, among others. Bill is a recipient of the Lands and Livelihoods Award from the Western Landowners Alliance, and he and his wife Dana received the Leopold Conservation Award for their contribution to the stewardship and conservation of working lands. Bill will share with us about the realities of what ranchers are up against, and ways that he sees resiliency being built for people and place. He speaks to the value and urgency in working collaboratively, creatively, and having honest dialogue around the shared challenges and successes. He will speak specifically to his work with the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition, when it aces, and an exciting new project, the Rangeland Monitoring Group, which involves rancher-guided research and data collection of the rangeland ecosystem. Bill has great insight and information for fellow ranchers, agency, conservation groups, and others that are looking to start a collaborative group in their own community, as well as those who may see themselves as distant to agricultural communities, as he expresses shared needs of humanity and resiliency. When associate producer Cassie Heron and I were visiting the Milton Ranch outside Roundup, it was August of 2021. Anyone in the West can attest that last summer was hot, dry, and often smoky. The moisture that central and eastern Montana depends on for the grass to grow typically comes in April and May. In 2021, that moisture never came, making for a stressful year for water users, wildlife, soil, and the cattle. 
At the Milton Ranch, the land was still beautiful and wide open, but the brown landscape was parched. The heat beat down, and visibility on the horizon was limited by the light brown haze of wildfire smoke, both from local fires and fires burning as far as Washington, Oregon, and even California. The smoke was not only tough on the animals and people, but the haze actually blocked the sun enough to limit growth for grass, crops, and for drying hay. We joined Bill out on the range in the peak heat of the day as he speaks to the realities of this summer's conditions. So the heat has been quite unusual. I mean, to have just back-to-back 90-degree, 100-degree days just day after day after day is, I think, somewhat unparalleled. We've had a number of drought years. I mean, the Northern Plains are a drought-prone deal, but if you go back even to the 30s, even those real drought years, they got six, seven, eight inches of rain. I mean, down at Millstone, I think they've gotten two inches. Some people's grass never came up. So what does that mean? I mean, cattle eat grass. And because the drought is so broad, you know, accessing affordable feed is almost impossible because everybody's in the same boat. Agricultural operations by their nature are uh, fairly low margin. They gotta be hitting on all cylinders to, to work. And even then they're not gonna make a whole lot of money. I'm really concerned uh, as much about the community as I am ourselves, you know. Everybody's in kind of a different boat. Some people own their land, some people are still buying their land. Some people put together great herds, great genetics, and they're having to dump those. Uh, You know, they're really heartbreaking stories. It's just, yeah, it's, uh, it changes day by day, you know, or during the day. (laughs) So I'm still... Telling our apprentice Natalie, my wife and I, we might go through three or four emotional curves in one day. You know, just depending on what the smoke looks like. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 hard on folks. Um, but a lot of people say out of wrecks like this come a lot of new ideas and creativity. And as you know, we're part of these other working groups, or you know, like ACES and Winnet and RSA that are looking at how to get other resources to help people develop water infrastructure, do fence. So, you know, I, to me, this just underscores the theme of all this collaboration is that we're interdependent, we depend on each other, you know, and uh, how do we leverage that culture in a situation like this? And uh, it, it, it's hard, you know, this is one of the, this is of all the issues that I think we've attached sort of addressed with these working groups. This is sort of an existential one that isn't easily organized out of. Bill and Dana, with the help of their apprentice, Natalie Berkman, who we'll hear from later, practice a type of rotational grazing, which involves daily moves of the herd in sections fenced off with electric fencing. This involves miles of movement every day, and Bill has always done all of his moves on foot. So for Bill and Natalie, this is a lot of time on the land, literally at ground level. This rotational grazing keeps the cattle moving in a way that benefits the land and prevents a certain area from becoming overgrazed. With proper management, the presence of grazing cattle creates an essential nutrient cycle for the soil microbes. The cattle graze on the forage, allowing for new growth. They then fertilize the ground and their hooves create the aeration necessary to feed the soil microbes and continue the cycle of nutrients. These grasslands evolved with the presence of herds of bison fulfilling this cycle. Having this healthier soil, and therefore grass and root structures underground, improves moisture retention and prevents runoff. 
ranchers have been around for a long time. It, it, they use some kind of grazing method that allows for recovery of their grass. We chose a method that's pretty aggressive about that approach where we concentrate our animals a little more than other people do and we graze for short periods, periods of time and then have long periods of recovery. And in terms of the, the reason we've, I think, gotten to this point in the drought and the, got most of the cows together and they're doing fairly well is that how we've grazed the last few years actually allowed for a lot of stockpiled feed. I always come back and say, you know, it's a marriage between the cattle and the land and the people and the whole nine yards. And if we can get it right so the cows can perform uh, and they have to adapt to the land so the land can perform. And so that we're just constantly just every day just fine tuning how to use these cattle to actually make feed by how they use their feet, their hoofs you know, how they lay feet on the ground. Um, you know, if you look down like right here, I mean, our goal is to have, you know, 90 to 100% uh, cover, less than 5% bare ground, because that means when it does rain, you know, we are gonna have a greater chance of capturing more moisture. There'll be less runoff. And boy, that's actually, managing water is the name of the game, particularly in, in, in any year, but this year in particular, if we were to get two inches some people, if, if their land is grazed really tight, that water's gonna run. I mean, and you know, where there's, there's not much litter on the ground, it's gonna run and you just can't waste a drop. And the data is just building up that if you can use cattle to create a good turf and get some good litter, uh, and then through the recovery, build good diversity, basically create a soil that um, is healthy, can take full advantage of the situation. So. The cows are a tool, you know, to take care of the land, but um, we have to manage it right so the cattle make enough money to keep running the enterprise. It's, like, you know, I think most ranchers get this. I just think we could be a lot more, a lot more creative about thinking about how we do that because there's been a lot of new science here in the last 20 years, and I think we could all do a better job. The drought trends are continuing into this year, 2022. And since last year, it has meant ranchers everywhere have either gone out of business or have had to significantly cull their herds, which equates to a huge financial hit and the loss of several years of work breeding a herd with select genetics. We're now joining Bill back near his home in the much appreciated shade of an old apple tree. Bill begins with laying the groundwork of describing this region and his thoughts on the necessary paths forward for rural Montana and rural America in general. So where we're located is central Montana. We lie between the, you know, Muscle Shell River and the Missouri River. But it's interesting how people have come to sort of identify the landscape. When I was first here, I'm not sure someone would say they're from the Muscle Shell watershed. Whereas now, you know, I'm from the Muscle Shell watershed, central Montana. And, you know, I'm part of a community that goes north and south of the Missouri River. It's a unique landscape that many people around the world have been drawn to and attracted to because it's one of the last large, fairly intact native grass landscapes left in the North American grassland. And, and you know, in the tall grass and mid grass, you know, much of that grass landscape has been plowed and turned into, into crops. But out here, by virtue of climate, by virtue of topography, 
by virtue of tradition and history, there seems to be a core that seems to be prepared to stay the way it's supposed to stay, or the, the way it has been. And then in the fact that in this part of Montana, there's a lot of public land, you know, right at the center of it is Charlie M. Russell Wildlife Refuge. The fact that there's so much public land also makes it difficult for conversion to something other than just wildlife management and, and grazing grass. Ranching being an industry that's fairly low margin under the best of management, you know, a lot of that land has been transferred to absentee type ownership. And this is not saying absentee land ownership can't be great conservation ownership, but it does change the culture. You know, there's no reason for an absentee landowner who can pay multi millions of dollars for land feel like super compelled to run a livestock enterprise that would reflect uh, just a small component of their capital portfolio. And this is an area in which a lot of the people who are farming and ranching here uh, have been here for some time. In fact, you know, if anything, we're, we're kind of like come-alongs. My dad bought a ranch in Montana in 57, you know, over by Wolf Creek. He had a knack to just blend in with the locals and and that's another whole story, but I, that's not for this program. But uh, so anyway, Central Montana is, is a place that's still a ranching community. It has small rural communities that have been in sort of steady decline demographically. Yet uh, in the last 10 years, you're, you're seeing some young people come back. You're seeing people work hard to try and kind of rebuild infrastructure and create incentives for people to come back. You see a lot more community organizing around just things like protecting from fire or forming foundations or just try to do things differently, make it more attractive uh, for people to come back. Yeah, you know, if, if you look at the statistics, you know, uh, urban areas continue to increase in, as a percentage of American population, uh, as the recent census has acknowledged. And, and so rural communities out here, if, if they want to survive, they can't wait for someone to help them do that. What's cool about working with a lot of people out here is people recognize that working with non-traditional partners and opening up to a lot of different support while still maintaining a lot of, you know, primary decision-making by the people who live here. But in respect with the people they're working with, the reason I'm probably sitting in front of this camera and the reason you're doing this project is, I think rural America needs this approach, this diverse approach, this multi-resource approach, this you know multi-stakeholder approach to figure out how to pull it together and, and advance it, actually. I asked Bill about the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition, which he is actively involved with. The coalition officially formed about 14 years ago and includes four water user groups, several conservation districts, state and federal agencies, and local residents across five counties. Together they ensure that all voices come to the table to maintain a healthy watershed for all of the diverse life that depends on it. This includes planning and testing around water quality and quantity, projects to restore the natural floodplain, and most importantly, it creates open communication and dialogue amongst all stakeholders along this 342 mile long river. The mussel shell and its whole water infrastructure and water rights is a multifaceted historical beast. It goes back, I mean, in the early 1900s when things started going south, people were looking uh, in many places out here. You know, the Milk River Project was another example where they 
Bureau of Reclamation. I mean, that was one of their first projects in the country, you know, during the New Deal, because people were going broke out on the uplands and how could we develop these riparian areas to produce more stable crops. So the history through the uh, early teens into the 20s was different local groups trying to put together private or partially private organizations to capitalize some kind of a story system. In the 30s, these kind of came together. And on the upper end, you had the Bear Reservoir, and you had the Martinsdale Reservoir, and then you had Dead Men's. But anyway, these were community-supported projects to provide contract water for, for people living and irrigating and farming along the river. Uh, they could complement their decreed water that they had already had water rights on going back all the way to 1875. So like rivers all across the West, you know, people applied and, and usually over-appropriated <laughs> most of the river. Uh, and, and Montana's had sort of a complicated, drawn out history on sorting this out and getting things adjudicated, but they are making good progress. Nevertheless, the mussel shell, you know, really depended on these state projects that I think also had some federal support to actually construct these dams. So right at the beginning, there's a good example of like, these things wouldn't have gotten off the ground without the state deciding to allocate, you know, state resources to help support and then to create structures so these irrigators could take them over. So I'm kind of going to fast forward. So you have these reservoirs built. You know, 30s, you go through the 40s, 50s, 60s. Everybody was pretty much looking at their source, uh, not really looking at the whole watershed. And there was just constant tension between the upper mussel shell water users, dead man's, the Mosby guys. They just figured that whatever's happening up there that I can't control, it could have been in Russia for as, as much as they knew what was going on in the upper mussel shell. And then the Delphia Melstone was a, another smaller contracted group that dealt with an irrigation project, you know, around the muscle shell millstone area. I'm probably not remembering it all correctly, but one of the issues that came up that got me drawn into this. So you had this sort of conflict that was just simmering and people would be sometimes taking people to court, but it was never resolved exactly how to fill these reservoirs up, you know, to, to fit a particular ride. Yet at the same time, the dead man's, because of their infrastructure system, had a policy of letting way too much water down Careless Creek that was sort of how they got the water from the reservoir to the river to go down the river and then feed, you know support the different irrigator groups and the level of water they would shove down that stream during the height of irrigation was well beyond the capacity of the physical structure of the river so they just really tore it up. So you had irrigators with the same organization ready to take themselves to court because the ones that were losing their land along Careless Creek were really ticked off their ground was being used as a way to make sure everybody else got their water, even though that was some of their water as well. So I somehow, I don't know how in the heck I got drawn in. You know, I actually, <laughs> I think before that I'd been asked by local grazing association who was also going to court with U.S. Fish and Wildlife over how to use a reservoir over here. And at the midnight hour, they called me and said, would you come in and see if you can facilitate? And I wasn't, I didn't have a shingle out. <laughs> it's not like I was advertising for work. So I found myself working in the river, even though I was an upland rancher here north of the river and started working with Lower Muscleshell Conservation District on, you know, how to deal with solving this problem with the irrigators on Carroll's Creek. And that was a fascinating project. And they got a national award on that where people came together who were pretty upset and came up with a plan to not only restore the creek, but to raise money to create a whole new, more modern infrastructure to deliver the water to the river without doing damage to the ground and then reducing the water 
down Carroll Street to a mount that it could tolerate. And so that was kind of a big, like, wow, big win. Took a while, a lot of, a lot of conversations. And NRCS folks, both in Harlottown and Roundup, were really key players in that. Doing that, I started becoming familiar with, like, well, how does this whole thing work? <laughs> this river and this infrastructure and all these problems these guys have. In the late 90s, oh, maybe it was 95, 96, I was asked by the Upper Muscle Shell and Dead Man's Board to, to facilitate a conversation between what would be a mutually acceptable way to fill the two reservoirs. And this has been going back and forth. So you, you hear these two really important water user groups fighting over how to fill reservoirs. And the key to the whole system is trying to optimize the capture of water for the entire watershed. I found myself immersed in like the politics of the river. And, and actually we came to a, they came to a you know, a really reasonable decision. Even when we were doing this, people weren't really necessarily working. They were just getting through one conflict after another. Uh, they weren't necessarily working together. So they solved that one. And then, and then like moving to uh, 2000, there was a whole big issue about getting you know, muscle shell adjudicated. And that actually was a really huge issue, which allowed a certain percentage of the water users to apply to the water court to put commissioners on the river and start measuring water. In fact, Dead Man's even before that time was measuring water. And so Muscle Shell, despite its size and compared to some other bigger rivers, really was providing some uh, leadership, challenging leadership to figure out how to allocate water properly. And through all that, I just, you know, actually in 2009, you know, there's things going on. I just asked all the water managers and because uh, I was thinking about, geez, you know, what if these guys could work together? And I just, we just sat around and said, well, how much money would it need for you guys to actually fix your aging infrastructure? Because one of the things that motivated me to have a conversation is just this, all they were doing with their O&M dollars, operation and management dollars was just trying to band-aid things that were breaking. And it was a great conversation. You know, I just sort of sat to ask some questions, sat back and listened, and they just said it, would, it was a millions of dollars it would take, because these things were all put in place back in the 30s, and it would continue to be a burden on the individual associations to deal with their particular infrastructure. So out of that conversation, yeah, it was born the Watershed Coalition of like, well, how would we deal with that? And uh, we started putting together just all the different stakeholders who could impact how we could do that, you know, how we could get more players at the table and describe our situation, grants we could write for. Uh, but then 2011 came and it, classic flood just blew the river apart, tore up piles of infrastructure. People, a lot of people never even irrigated that year. It was really a, a devastation. In May of 2011, the Muscleshell River flooded at record levels, impacting large parts of central Montana. The town of Roundup suffered the most damage of any community here, and over 30 homes had to evacuate, and dozens were destroyed. The fact that the coalition had a circle formed and was meeting allowed us to create immediate collaborative and strategic contact with Congress, with the state, with DNRC. I mean, there's still a lot of people even then in, in DNRC that really didn't know where the muscle shell was. But after 2011, <laughs> they knew where the muscle shell was. The effort everyone made to, to respond, to try and get people back up, and to try and understand the river and try and look at the infrastructure, uh, it, it just 
created that kind of positive momentum that it makes sense for us to be at the table together. And the coalition began getting a reputation that if it got a grant or it got anything, it just got it done. You know, in fact, we had DNRC calling us and say, we have leftover money here. We got $50,000. We probably think you guys have a shovel. Yep. And we had a city had a project, you know, for uh, protecting the well for Roundup. And, and so then the city says, wow, this is cool. You guys are delivering this. Bill speaks to a specific project the coalition was involved in with the town of Roundup, Muscleshell County, and the Montana Department of Environmental Quality's Abandoned Mine Lands Program. Even today, Muscleshell County has been producing coal. It started producing coal in, you know, 1907 to, to serve the uh, Milwaukee Railroad. That was the primary reason for forming a coal mine here. And Roundup had a quite unique multi-ethnic community of people from all over Europe and Southeast Europe that came to work in those mines. And nevertheless, mining in, in 1900s, they weren't required to do a hell of a lot. <laughs> to protect the environment. It just wasn't thought of. And so we were left with this legacy of a lot of leftover material that was toxic and maybe not necessarily super dangerous to the community, but just something you couldn't do a lot with. And because of the flood and because of this commitment to do major restoration and buyout, on the floodplain. So how are we going to avoid this again? Because, you know, they've, Roundup has had numerous floods. Well, let's just see if we can effectively and safely and respectfully create the opportunity for people to sell their places that are in the floodplain and get them a reasonable amount of money for it. So we can just clear, clear the floodplain of all these old houses and, uh, and create space for the water to, to move when it does flood. And then abandoned mines came in with, with Scott and uh, the DEQ, and they really brought some key resources to make this project really start to, to roll. The Bear Collins coal mine, which operated on the edge of Roundup from the 1920s to 1954, had modified the floodplain of this stretch of the Muscleshell River for its operations. This modification exacerbated flooding in the town of Roundup. The Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mine Lands Program worked with local partners, including the Muscleshell Watershed Coalition, to clean up waste from the mine site and restore the contour and vegetation of the floodplain. The Abandoned Mine Lands Program is funded through a grant from the Department of Interior's Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement and there was no charge to the county for AML restoration completed at this site. In this next phase of the project, several partners are now working to create a network of recreational trails, creating new opportunities to connect community members to this river, where there is currently limited public access sites. It's been a remarkable project, and to me, these are projects local people would never have had the resources to clean up. To me, this is like state partnerships with local people at its best. Cleaning things up and, and the community having some say on how to do it. And we had a, yeah, we had a watershed meeting, uh, one of our bi-monthly meetings the other day. And, and to just watch Scott talk about what next he could do in the area. I mean, it's almost like this is his project. <laughs> he doesn't live here, but he, he has a great passion for making this the best possible project. Well, that's how state and local people should work. <laughs>
you know, and, and all through this, the different agencies, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. I mean, that's a whole other element. Mike Ruggles, who you're going to be interviewing, remarkable human being, great capacity to work with people, has played an immense role in allowing some projects to be to be created uh, and some monies to be put together. That these kind of things would not happen if there wasn't a circle of people in which the space was safe, respectful, and curious. And, and people all genuinely interested in trying to get something done that would be mutually beneficial to the community and to the state. So to me, the coalition is, and then Lauren Ola came along who's like superwoman for like getting stuff done. And, uh, and we joke because, yeah, I'm just up in the sky, but she's down making sure, you know, the water runs. <laughs> but I'm glad I always have to find people who can do that. It's just amazing to see how people just birth projects out of the uh, right environment you know it's, it's something i call sort of collective wisdom you know that, that to leverage collective wisdom you have to have collaboration you have to have circles of people one mind just is not sufficient to solve the complex problems that we're addressing in central montana there are various examples of community guided collaborative groups i ask bill to connect these overarching themes of these groups the connective tissue within the need for there to be more of them in existence around the state. There is a pile of groups in Montana. <laughs> and a lot of groups in every watershed. And I think the point we're trying to make here is that, you know, find that neighborhood that's your own. And, and how do you create the most effective circle and dialogue and engagement that allows people to really understand that place and to think of ways to take care of it. You know, how do we take care of this place? Just a couple of such groups in this greater region are the Rancher Stewardship Alliance, or RSA, which operates out of Malta. And you can hear more about them in a podcast with Bud and Sheila Walsh. There's also Win at Aces, which you can hear more about in the podcast with Laura Nolan which is a locally-led organization that leads programs and outreach to benefit the health of the landscape and the vitality of the community of Winnet and Petroleum County. Everything from getting resources to ranchers to improve their water infrastructure, to fixing up old buildings in town to create more housing and business opportunities. Bill facilitated the first informal conversations from which the official organization of Winnet Aces was formed out of. They had so much latent capacity. <laughs> in their community unrealized it was just unremarkable it was just having it was just like the conversation with uh, the water managers in Rygate it's like well let's just see what we might what, let's just talk about what we might do here you know we had this evening conversation uh, about well how you feeling about how things are going in here you know and the older guys were just kind of like down on how everybody was telling them how to do stuff and we're just going to have to accept it and kind of pissed off and grumpy and then you get some of the younger people, well, you know, we can do a beef in the school thing. And, and then Laura comes up, well, you know, I was just investigating. Some group got a lot of money to buy a ranch and shit, we're better than they are. <laughs> and, you know, over about two and a half hours, the group decided, yeah, it makes, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to form something. And nobody knew exactly what they were doing. They, you know, it's like any group that starts, you just start. And, uh, and I'm, I am astounded, and you'll, you know, you'll have much better interview space up there. I'm just astounded with the capacity of both those groups. They brought in some great staff the last few years. They're 
becoming remarkable in grant writing and you know they they're thinking about how to build staff that become like people who live in the community and it's and, and their and their principle of all these groups is can you make conservation can you can landscape health and economics coincide and self-support and i mean that's that's the core and then how do you tell a story and that was that was the coalition too it's like you guys if you get together and tell a larger story people are going to and that's exactly what happened when people all of a sudden saw that we were trying to protect the muscle shell watershed it was a lot of difference and maybe the dead man's water association needing thirty thousand dollars to fix you know a particular canal but under the story you could ask for that grant so um, now we're all just trying to evolve these groups to respond to what seems to be an ending, an unending, relentless challenge on the challenges facing these rural communities and family ranchers out here. I, I wish we were even farther along because I, I think most of us don't know exactly how to, how to you know, droughts are, are existential threats that it's like you don't really prepare, but you can prepare, you know, for earthquakes and floods, you know, and I think you can prepare to make people have the best management plans possible or the best grazing plans or the best soil and stuff which we're all about um, but something like this is a little bit like the 2011 flood it's like has such a universal impact across the entire community that the entire community has to be involved in figuring out a response and it's it's really complicated. I was sending a, an email to some folks the other day because on August 14th was the, uh, it was one of the anniversaries of the, the passage of the Social Security Act. Well, that was the first act ever passed in this country in which the government made a intentional decision that they were responsible for providing support for people who were without resources. And if you go back to that history, even though it was widely supported, it was widely hated. <laughs> and we're, we're hearing, if you listen to the arguments in 35, you'll hear the same arguments in uh, 2021, you know. So, you know, I, I asked the question, gee, what is an appropriate safety net when all, everything hits the fan? I have no idea, but I mean, the culture needs to have that discussion. Uh, because all we ranchers are in sort of different situations in terms of our history and working capital and whether we own our land or lease our land or whatever, at different stages in development of our business. And some people are going to be hit more painful, painfully by this drought than others. But even those who are pretty stable, I think we're all finding ourselves that unless something significant changes, we'll all be in some level destocking, which means less income which means a lot of uncertainty. And so again, yeah, what's there? And there will be programs. There are programs, you know, to help people, but uh, are they the most fair? You know, people who really need them and do some people who don't really maybe need them, get them. And Bill laughs that he does not want to get too lost in the political back and forths here, but that these kinds of things are what we need to be having more honest conversations about. He then goes back to speaking to the general binding themes of these collaborative efforts. When we look at ACES and RSA, at the heart of that, or in the purpose of all these groups, is 
how local people take responsibility for their future, but realize that requires building all kinds of un, you know non-traditional networks and partnerships that that not to show bias for anyone who shares a similar principles or philosophy about protecting grasslands or protecting water or whatever or protecting family ranches and you know historically agriculture hasn't been quite so willing though it's a lot better than it was maybe 20 30 years ago but these groups in particular seem to have just almost embraced these opportunities you know we have a ranch just to the east of us uh, and we've gone through different iterations but that project was essentially is how do we put an easement on a local ranch to lower the value of that land so two or three young people could buy that ranch and make it up well that's after about four years that's happening you know so there'll be an easement on it and there'll be some young people on it and and we work with tnc and we work with a lot of other people who help provide dollars and nrcs and and the, and the ranch family itself to have remarkable patience to seeing the project to its fruition and not just getting the money that was there to be had you know that's an, another kind of principle here is for us to be able to work with landowners and create opportunities for young people to come back yeah do you need the most money that someone would pay you uh, in this day and age for your land or would you be happy to get a quite reasonable amount but be able to have life estate or know that some young person has come and are your are your kids you know through some means and resources can continue to farm uh, or ranch or place um, so you know that's part of a lot of our work is how do we create a, a network to talk to landowners and try and catch them in places before they just get frustrated and they just put a sign out there and someone comes and pays them everything they want and then some it's pretty pretty attractive and, and I worry in a year like this that's going to be real attractive and so I, I think our work is as pressing as it was when we began. <laughs> this is nothing new, it's just ramping up in recent decades. But in central Montana, as with many places in the West, ranchers are being pressured to sell. And often the only person who can afford to buy that place is someone who becomes an absentee owner. Someone who does not reside on that property or in that community year-round, often buying that property for its recreational value. And maybe they run cattle on it for supplementary income and outsourcing the management of the operation as they're not often there themselves. The uptick in absentee landowners also impacts the communities in small towns, where they need all residents to be active in the community, to be on school boards, volunteer fire departments, etc. Other possibilities when land goes up for sale are forms of subdividing, or fragmenting that land, and therefore the habitat, to turn into residences, industrialized farming, energy development. The options vary depending on where you are, but the point being that it is put at risk of an unknown of how that land will be managed. I asked Bill to tell me about that significance of keeping local ranchers on the landscape here, what that means for maintaining connected wildlife habitats, and for keeping some of the rural communities here going. So you're getting both a, the complicated formula and the complicated history because, you know, uh, a Native American listening to this is saying, well, yeah, you know, we would have liked that opportunity. <laughs> and, and so we're kind of moving in terms of Montana agriculture into 
uh, families who have been here for six generations. The value of having these ranchers that serve other purposes, that, that provide other support and commitment to schools, you know, to local merchants, to all nature of community events that require just volunteer public support. If all of a sudden a ranch with 20, 30, 40 ranches is now like four or five absentee-owned ranches, I'm not saying these people are bad, but they probably, because of their size, will be contracting most of their stuff outside of the region. And, and they'll come in to not fully appreciate the complication of the history and just these kind of things we're going through today. So the sort of the ancient wisdom, you know, both of Native American and ranchers who've been here since the 1880s, it's pretty hard to replace that kind of experience. Even if it, sometimes that knowledge or wisdom may not have all the things it needs to deal with today's challenges. But nevertheless, it's just that you know, long-term commitment and appreciation of the ground uh, versus what we often see with, uh, and I, when I talk to people with the Montana Land Alliance, you often see with these absentee landowners, it's, uh, there's exceptions to the rule, but they buy this wonderful ranch in some part of Montana, and usually by 15, 20 years, it's, you know, they're on to something else. Well, family ranchers don't go on to something else. <laughs> this is it. And that kind of, you know, stick to it in this. And sometimes we all, I mean, you go back to the 80s. I mean, it's just scary to think how many people went out of business in the 80s. Uh, that would have been a great time to start ACES, <laughs> but I'm glad it started now. But so, you know, it's that commitment of the local committee that, you know, that really, that, that really is here and has ownership of taking care of the place. It's the appreciation, by the appreciation now of the local community of, of understanding and respecting the value that people outside of the region have for the uniqueness of their place. And sometimes that creates offense. But that's what people see potentially happening is, is you know, quote, big money interest uh, that would love to own 100,000 acres in one of the last remaining great grasslands, uh, you know, buys these family ranchers out. And so the school systems dry up and governments have a tough time maintaining roads. And so to me, the, the ideal outcome is for the, uh, is for the local community to understand why the world sees their place as they do and use that as an advantage <laughs> versus a threat and say, okay, we get it. You want to save uh, non-fragmented uh, grasslands, you know, to protect birds and all these diverse wildlife and you want, you know, certain predators and stuff. Okay, well, let's, let's sit down and bargain about how you can help our economy and we could actually through pulling of our land you know we we could provide we are providing and could, could continue to provide those spaces for those resources but create kind of a new sort of social contract of like well if, if we make that commitment and maybe make some sacrifices and compromises but i don't think there would have to be many in terms of our production what is the culture going to provide in some kind of ecosystem payment to ranchers so that they're motivated uh, to do this, to create real cash flow opportunities to complement their livestock operations? So I think, I think we're sort of in right in the, the, 
mix of debating, you know, who and what and how and why. But in the end, I mean, a lot of people look at APR's model, gee, three million acres, you know, private park, open to the public. What don't you like, you know? What <laughs> don't you like if you're an environmentalist? But I say, well, what, what if you had a 10 million acre park that had public access and it was run by a rancher cooperative? <laughs> and, uh, or maybe you had a combination, I don't know. I, 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 and, and that kind of thinking is what I find with these groups is they're inviting people all around the West and they're inviting us is like, well, what's this new, you know, what's this new paradigm? How would it work? You know, because uh, we're basically making it up, but we got to make it up. There's something different that needs to happen here. Uh, so I, I'm really excited, but it, at the present moment, I'm a little bit discouraged <laughs> what's going on around me. And then can you speak to, what is yourself and Dana's philosophy of how you run this operation? Um, you know, speaking to those concepts of balance and the bigger picture of what you are trying to accomplish as you're um, running your operation here. You know, I'm a hybrid, you know, I went to Berkeley. <laughs> I grew up, grew up on a ranch, you know, I uh, worked on some big sheep and cattle ranches before we bought this place. And, and so I was pretty familiar with that neighborhood and I think had some trust that that they knew I trusted them. In fact, actually back in 70s and 80s, I was working for Stephen Ranch and there's a Northern Rockies Action Group and we were organizing then ranchers and environmentalists to talk about wolves. This is like back in the frickin' 80s, you know, and going to places between Idaho, Wyoming and Montana and have these really fascinating conversations. But you know, me personally, you know, I, I grew up on a really cool ranch called the Bear, it's now the Beartooth Game Range, uh, that was sort of a wildlife paradise. And I was just a young teenager who was cowboy in the hills. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be riding early in the morning through a whole cow herd with baby calves and just, you know, the crescendo of all the mothers and calves. Talk. That was just like, yeah, that was just everyday stuff. <laughs> And, and I had a lot of, a lot, you know, pretty amazing moments uh, growing up on that ranch that appreciated, uh, you know, that there just wasn't any separation between anything. So when I, you know, got out of school, our ranch had been sold. I was debating, you know, going back to Montana. I didn't know sure exactly what and why, but had met Dana and she had an opportunity to go to New Mexico. And so we went to New Mexico and Northern New Mexico in a place uh, called Viacitos and, and got a really good deep drink of how unique that culture is down there. Uh, and worked with a lot of horse farmers, you know, in the place we were at. I was just footloose. I just, yeah, let's go, let's go put up eight with horses. Let's go do this. Let's just take long walks, you know? And uh, that's where I learned that just start walking. And basically I kind of realized that I, I just wanted to make a, a living on a native on a native place. You know, could I make it, you know, and that's livestock raising. <laughs> and you know, I'd been I'd grown up on a ranch. 
So yeah, we uh, came back and looked and looked, and now it's during the 70s when prices just kept climbing and climbing. And then finally, an opportunity for a small place out here uh, opened up, and we uh, put some money down, and um, we've just been grinding our way through ever since. We've, yeah, we've gone through so many learning opportunities since then about managing grass, and, and we've always been sort of as much into nature in wildlife as, as we were into livestock. In fact, probably the biggest criticism I've had uh, placed against me is that you, you give too much credit to the land and not enough to the livestock. But I think I've started to even that out through skillfulness, you know, that when I realized that taking care of the cattle well and having the right cattle would also create the best outcome for the land. And so we've been working on that formula for a long, long time and have pulled together a pile of wonderful partners that have helped do that. And we've invited, you know, just all kinds of different people to, to study different parts of the ranch. I mean, most ranchers, as conscious they are of wildlife, you know, you don't have the time to do the micromanaging of like, well, let's go see how the, how the frogs are doing this, this spring, you know, or, uh, or how many species of frogs do we have? Or like, or how many butterflies do we have? Or, or lichen and stuff like, or, and, and you know, I invited this wonderful botanist to come and do a plant taxonomy for the ranch. It took about three years. And so we always had this sort of investment in looking at the entire ecology of the place. And then how could we make sure the cattle didn't mess that up and, and they worked. One of the more interesting stories is, you know, working with a wonderful gal with the Natural Heritage Program. She wanted, no one had ever studied lichen and fungi and moss out in Muscle Shell. And so why would you entertain these guys? And the, the, so they're the, the, the Pacific Northwest lichenologists. These guys are the stars of, of this work. And, you know, it took about a year uh, and uh, it came together. They came here and the BLM, they kind of supported it too. And, they had that whole house over there filled with tables and microscopes. They spent almost a week here and we just fed them and listened to their stories. And, and it was so kind of reaffirming, you know, they thought things were gonna go pretty quickly and they go out in the first day and said, we've only gone 50 yards. There's so much stuff out here, you know, and, and, and a lot of them were range scientists by trade in the school and, and were kind of surprised that the country looked pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a lot of robust conversations about cows and conservation and diversity. And, and then they put out a great report. And this, to me, that was like ranchers advancing what we are protecting, you know, but you have to kind of go out and invite those people in to say, well, guess what? These ranches are ecosystems. They, they're supporting, you know, we had a guy come out and look at bats and reptiles and amphibians and, you know, speaking about ranchers who don't maybe understand birds, you know, we'll get into this in the rangeland monitoring group, but, you know, there's four or five, four in particular, really sort of birds of concern out here in the Northern Plains. Marissa Sather, who works for Partners for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and Kelsey Malloy, who works with TNC, uh, they'd been developing a monitoring program kind of adapted to their needs to kind of try and figure out the trends of these birds. And, you know, I kind of jumped into that and said, well, well, we could set up a plot. And then and no one had any money, you know, it's hard to get these things done. And we didn't have any, there wasn't any professional biologists that just be hired to do it. We had to kind of put that together. And 
a lot of the ranchers and aces said, oh yeah, I'll do that. And they ended up just loving it. You know, oh God, I didn't know we had that, you know. And, and so all of a sudden, then they start looking for that kind of stuff. They start appreciating things that they might have overlooked in, in the course of just, you know, having a, a wonderful ranch family business. And, and then they appreciate all these other people who seem to want to work with them. I mean, so more recently, the Audubon Conservation Ranching Program, you know, the sort of centered out of Colorado, we just went through a process of getting almost certified, we'll get certified with them. And it's just, they got a bunch of ranchers around the Northern Plains that are getting certified. And what does it mean? You know, it's kind of another one of those complicated audits, but if you get certified, they're actually seriously trying to find markets for, you know, maybe grass-fed cold cattle uh, or people who raise grass-fed cattle. They're not into the, in the maybe feedlot cattle, but, but it's these kind of, uh, partnerships that evolve when these groups realize like we're a wildlife fund you know they've just recently put together a grant program to help with infrastructure management or monitoring uh tnc um, uh, pheasants forever i mean all these groups are just all on the same page about figuring that since most of the land in the northern plains is private maybe we should create a relationship with private landowners Bill goes on to share about another study he was involved with on his ranch related to the uptick in grasshoppers that was seen across the West, and really the world, in recent years. It really seemed to peak in 2021. Grasshoppers thrive in drought conditions and consume the vegetation and forage of a grassland, creating competition for wildlife and cattle. And of course, they also consume farm crops. Oh, more recently there is, so th this is, this is a sort of fascinating, complex deal. So Montana had a lot of hoppers this year. So we had done research going back over 10, 12 years ago, was there a type of spray that was very targeted to hoppers and was protective of water and, 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 and talk to people at MSU and Hayes Gooseberry, people who studied insects. And actually, you know, back in 2011 or 12, we actually did a spray. And, you know, we did this because we felt the hoppers were going to take all the grass. And I think the debate is still out there whether that was a good thing or not. Yeah, so then this came up in 2021. And, you know, here we are, the hoppers are back. And I, I think in the end, because it was so dry, people didn't do too many sprays because there just wasn't much they could do. Beth Madden, who uh, is a retired U U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologist, really good on birds, read this article from Western Watersheds and some other groups that they were gonna spray millions of acres in Montana and it was gonna be this fairly toxic spray and was gonna be killing a lot of non-targeted animals. And it was a press release one would expect if you hadn't seen the whole story. So I called Beth and said, well, Beth, you know, this is a little more complicated because she had sent it out to her whole listserv. And I love Beth, you know, and she's, very supportive of ranchers, but she was really worried about this. And so we had a long talk. So this is a lot more nuanced than you think. And she says, well, can I put you in touch with the Z-E-R-Z-E-S? It's the Insect Society. <laughs> and so I reached out and talked to uh, a lady in the society. She said, well, you know, this is more complicated. We, we love our insects. <laughs> we'd, lo we'd love to have you come out and study our insects on the ranch. <laughs> My wife is super keen on bees. And you know, on the 16th of September, we're going to have a Zoom call. 
And it, it's just that subtle how you could take a kind of big article that might get people pissed off or on both sides. It's like someone taking the time to just say, well, let's, I'm not saying I'm right, but let's just talk about your concerns and, and uh, let's, let's, let's test what the heck's going on out here. And they were really open. I'm really looking forward to this because that's one layer in our ecosystem that we don't understand that well. And it's a very important layer in the ecosystem in the health of rangelands. On that note, I asked Bill about the Rangeland Monitoring Group, or RMG, another collaborative effort that Bill is a leading part of. RMG brings together ranchers, scientists, and more to monitor and create collective knowledge to inform and improve rangeland management. A grant from Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, or SARE, in 2021 has kickstarted a pilot program involving three ranchers in central Montana, including Bill. So the Raised on Margin Group, it goes back to everything I've said. It's like, okay, if ranchers are going to make the case that they're taking care of the land, how are you going to be credible? You know, if you don't do some kind of monitoring. And monitoring can be a little expensive, and we could debate about what needs to be monitored, how it needs to be monitored. All those are totally legitimate issues because we had already been doing monitoring for quite a number of years. And the reason we have to do monitoring, another whole story, <laughs> is for us to do the grazing we do on this ranch, you know, 40% of the ranch is public land, is BLM. And for them to approve our proposal back in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the pieces of that agreed proposal was to have a third party person monitoring the, land, you know, the range land as we implemented this plan. You know, with as many people who question whether we're taking care of the land, what if we really put together a substantial, pragmatic monitoring program amongst ranchers that would be credible, would be accepted by a lot of NGOs and, and universities and agencies, but simple enough that ranchers can understand it and do it. In, in a few words, it's like community landscape monitoring. I can monitor my place, which we have done, and, and make decisions based on that information. But if I look at monitoring from 10 ranches around me and see what they're learning, that's, gonna, that's that collective wisdom thing. One, it provides a great feedback loop to us, probably the most primary thing to us about, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? How's it working? But then the agencies can be involved and the, and the universities can be involved. And so everybody's kind of collectively learning about the landscape in a really more direct way. Usually the way rangelands are studied is someone calls you and says, I'd like to do a study on your ranch. This is, this is a study, and this is something, again, pretty inherent with ACES and RSA. It's like, we're all for studies. We want to be on the ground floor on how to design the study. <laughs> Don't use the rancher as a way to authenticate your study without our involvement in the design. Let's make sure it's meeting everybody's needs, not just your particular scientific needs. And most people are cool with that, you know, because it makes sense. So we started these conversations with people around the West, you know, who were doing different monitoring and just figuring out how we could do this. And fast forward to like a year or so ago, we got a SARE grant and, and have a little bit of staff and got some good resource consultant people. And we're actually putting together uh, some kind of a platform in which our data relating to soils, plants, and birds, and uh, remote sensing, you know, through the rangeland analysis program with NRCS, 
we're starting to overlap that in kind of graphic form to show trends on a ranch. We just picked three ranchers who are willing to go with confusion and chaos. And once we get all three of us on board on what to gather and how, how to graph it and how to share it and how to store it, there's people on all sides that, in different communities that would like to do this. But I, we finally reached a point we just have to do it someplace with a few enough people that we can iron out all the, the challenges. So many people have different ideas about what to monitor and how to monitor. But in this process, we work with World Wildlife Fund, who had also been doing a study for over a year, trying to get all these NGOs across the country to agree on some core indicators. And they were to take these eight, they were able to take 80, 100 indicators and re reduce them down to about 13, you know, again, through this process. And so we have this opportunity here of actually developing a monitoring program at a landscape scale. And it, I say we have an opportunity because there's a lot of work yet to be done here where, you know, we could have all these stakeholders agreeing to a methodology and a data collection. Uh, that everybody could look at and share and debate and discuss. So the data itself is not as critical as the data being sort of this food for dialogue. You know, having good credible data that's, that's worthy of dialogue, but the dialogue and the anecdotes that go with the data, that's when the discussion gets really rich. And again, so what are we trying to do in 2021 when the you know, the world's getting hot and things look a little bit discouraging. Maybe we should be leveraging our collective wisdom to figure out how to get out of this. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is a way to try and do it. And I, you know, it's taken a lot of conversations and trust building and, and a lot more to go to create a, a really authentic, credible monitoring program that motivates decision-making by the individual rancher but creates a larger picture of what's happening in our grassland ecosystem, you know, in our multi-million acre community. I'm excited about that one, but it's a labor of immense patience. Let's kind of bounce back to bigger picture, you know, some kind of final words on these concepts of folks working together, you know, with a sense of urgency of what we're seeing happening with, you know, environment, with landscape, with uh, soil, water, all of these issues that you're up against, or you were saying when we were out in the field about this concept of getting creative and just how important that is and where we find ourselves in 2021, why it's so important to get creative. So just these concepts of looking for new ideas and being open to new ideas. You know, the idea of the ranching, farming, the rural community responding to something existential like climate change. I mean, you know, we, I know, we're still wrestling with, you know, conditioning that that someone might look at that issue quite a bit different than the next guy. So in my case, I respect the people who have questions, but at the same time, I've been following the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change for 30 years. <laughs> I'm feeling like, boy, if there's someone in the community that has more insight than 200 scientists in 194 countries. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to sit down and just all ears, all ears. But I haven't seen anyone jump up quite yet that really has 
credentials to do that. Yeah, I think we, it's kind of even surprising now. It's like after that report came out a week ago and then the kind of things we've been experiencing, not only in North America, but across the world. So if, you know, and again, you know, we all look at different news feeds, but you know, so I was seeing the floods in Europe. I'm seeing the fires in Siberia. I'm seeing the floods in China. And then, you know, you may have certain commentators you follow that just, this is their thing. And so you have to be careful, you know, you have like a lot more information maybe, and that doesn't make you any necessarily wiser or smarter, but it just makes you aware that there's something serious going on here. And uh, there's not a lot of time to kind of fool around. And, you know, when I, when I experience even in our local community, uh, the willingness of people to engage in high friction discussions about points of view, when we're trying to release creativity to uh, birth new ideas, you know, people are just getting hung up on like, this is how it is. So I, I am perceiving that these groups could be example within these rural communities that are relatively conservative to show how working with diversity uh, and you don't even have to call it climate change. It's like, we just need to hold more water in the ground. So call it water retention. I don't care. Uh, do everything in your power to use your livestock to optimize water retention and see what that does. But then there's always the policy issue too. I mean, there's, there's big policy issues that are gonna affect us no matter how effective we are individually on our ground. And that's not a place, you know, most of my neighbors either are comfortable going into, you know, that's the, they, they elect congressmen to do that. They've said this term a lot, it's sort of an all hands on deck thing right now. And you know, what could every community and individual do to kind of turn the tide? And when I think of these opportunities, so we were down uh, at a conference with uh, Leopold Winters in Colorado and met this wonderful young gentleman that had taken his grandfather's farm of like 27 acres near Boulder and turned it into a solar farm but constructed in a way that you can grow an entire garden underneath it and you can graze animals underneath it and they they teach kids underneath it and they have concerts underneath it and it's like every rural community in montana could have a wonderful garden tied to a winter garden and be raising their own vegetables you know but it's so how do you ex you know explore those and not do it in a way like you you know you really need to do that how do we have enough trust in our group to like, can we bring someone in to talk about this? You know, maybe it's a good idea, you know. But so resilience is going to come out for us in so many forms. And it's, you know, yeah, you, you might say with a rancher, it's going to be in, in your grass production and your soil, soil health and water retention and your cow genetics or, or your management or whatever you do to try and simplify and adapt. You know, along with that resilience is going to be things like childcare <laughs> and an effective health program. I mean, I, I've talked to ranchers who have said, you know, it'd be difficult to bring their son back because they couldn't afford health insurance. I mean, so we often get caught up on, you know, whether this animal, that animal should be in the landscape or what else we're going to do and blah, blah, blah. And yet something is fundamental affecting the economic model of uh, a family ranch is just, can I not worry about health insurance? <laughs> can, I, can I actually afford something within, within my economy and know that, uh, and every American, you know, I think most Americans would want that. And yet 
we you know just seem to have such a difficulty breaking through you know i think as we start as as these local groups these local networks and i just love to see a lot in these networks just keep expanding where the, there is these communities that are pretty unique and that in eastern montana yeah circles not jordan you know jordan's not you know they're they're their own communities and they have to kind of come up with their own formula on how to collaborate and, and structures that allow them to sit in the table on a regular basis and explore what the unmet needs are. So, you know, I, I feel all, you know, we can kind of do that here is see if we can be successful with some models that people can say, well, you know, that doesn't seem so uncomfortable or that doesn't seem so out of the box. I mean, the, the, the Watershed Coalition, I think, has been an example, particularly with some watersheds that had difficulty with water rights, they often would get some of our folks to come up and talk about how we dealt with adjudication. So you can be an example, a positive example in that way, but you just have to do the work. The deal is these landscapes aren't gonna get 24 seven attention from someone who does not live here. And that maybe is the nail in the coffin. You gotta keep the people who live here have a reasonable chance to be successful and be healthy and they in turn will take care of this large space and this large space will be available for the public who wants to come out and experience large places, but it'll be a large place. It won't be a subdivision. It'll be working ranches that support all the wildlife. You know, most of the wildlife was here before, you know, when Lewis and Clark came through. And ranchers, uh, ranchers can, they have the capacity to offer that and to make that kind of story. And, and somehow people might help us figure out a way to generate other forms of income so our ranchers just don't feel quite up against it so often. Bill and Dana Milton have been hosting an apprentice on their ranch for the past two years. But Natalie Berkman, who grew up far from a ranch in Washington, D.C., moved west to Colorado for college and fell in love with all aspects of working on the land. She worked for farm operations before realizing her true calling was working with livestock animals, specifically cattle, and she landed at the Milton Ranch through the Quivera Coalition's new agrarian program, which pairs folks who may have not had a chance to grow up in agriculture to farms and ranches across the West that have a land ethic built into their operations. This program is a great way to touch on accessibility for next-generation ag producers. The apprentice program was developed down in the southwest with the Quivera Coalition, which is another kind of multi-stakeholder group in the southwest addressing all these regenerative issues and same kind of things, you know, that we've been talking about here. And they, four or five years ago, had some of their people say, you know, how do we get young people that haven't had the chance to grow up on a ranch who might want to make this, you know, something they could do for a living, how do we introduce them and build skills so they might have a founding chance to get a job somewhere or even better yet, create a, create a business within that community, you know, or be a support within that community. We've really come to appreciate the uh, comprehensiveness of, of trying to make the best effort to match the mentor. Uh, that would be us, my wife and I, and the apprentice, you end up getting someone who has a high likelihood of being able to fit into your program to learn and to support us. And so I'm getting to become an older guy. And you know, we're, we're, we have succession issues we're working on. Our kids are, you know, our, my, our daughter's gonna come back. 
uh, not sure exactly what the mix of enterprises will be, but to do the level and intensity of grazing that we're doing on this place, to have an apprentice to help with the movement of livestock was sort of invaluable. In fact, we may not have been able to do the level of work we're doing uh, without an apprentice, but we're providing all kinds of, we're providing place for them to stay. We're letting them go to workshops. We're not just treating them as a hired hand. We're, we're literally mentoring them every step of the way. You know, over the last two years, we use this like grazing program called Maya. It really keeps track of your moves and archives them and keeps track of animal days left. And and very sophisticated tool that helps in a situation like that. Yeah, we just, just a couple of weeks ago, we developed a grazing program for where we would move between now and April to try and get through this thing. I really didn't have the capacity to really manage that. You know, Natalie being a millennial and those guys, you know, she picked it up and is really tuning the ranch up and making it work. She is going to be capable of going on and I think being real, real useful somewhere. Like we particularly think this grazing is a big issue. You know, I mean, we live in a we live in a grassland it's, it's ecosystem, trying to get more sophisticated by our with our grazing strategies that aren't burdensome but are effective. That these apprentices might be a key piece. You know, sort of apprentice pastoralists. You know, people that get taught how to understand livestock, how to move livestock, how to take care of livestock, how to understand land, how to network with people. You know, and Natalie goes off and visit other ranchers, you know, who are doing this, who are really good. Uh, so young people, motivated, excited, really want to know the best way to do it, you know, challenge you, challenge me uh, often. And now we hear from apprentice Natalie Berkman. I like working on the Milton Ranch because we walk everywhere. We do all of our cattle moves and drives on foot with dogs, which is a little bit unusual for a ranch of this scale beyond just getting to know the landscape really well and like having to look down and you know pay attention to every step I take and what plant is growing and quizzing myself on my plant ID. I also just like to kind of slow down and kind of like sit for a second and look at where I am and look at the sky because it's kind of easy to like just try to finish your task and get to the next thing and when you get into that rhythm you just kind of take this landscape for granted and it's like Hello, Natalie. This is the most beautiful place you could possibly work. Like, just calm down, you know, take it all in and take a breath. As Natalie came to this ranching lifestyle in her early adult years, I asked her about the elements that clicked for her, that brings her the joy that lets her know that she's found a lifestyle that she wants to maintain. It's kind of like a trifecta of good-looking animals, healthy animals, healthy grass, which... I think a big part of that is the moving them every day. And then, yeah, just having like these loving relationships with neighbors and um, people in the community, which is kind of the really fun part about living here. It's cool to interact with um, fellow apprentices or other young people I meet in ranching, especially ones who come from a similar background to mine who didn't grow up on a ranch. And it kind of like solidifies the fact that like, I'm not in this alone, and, you know, there's a ton of people like me, even close to me, who are really interested in this stuff, and having them to talk to and bounce ideas off and share resources, it's just, it's so important. I feel like I meet young people everywhere I go who are also ranchers, and especially I meet a ton of women who are ranchers, and 
that's also like a, a wonderful community of, of people that I, I, I love working with my female neighbors or, you know, helping out at a, uh, this, this woman in the bulls always has us over to help her work cows. And that's just always something I look forward to. At the end of 2021, Natalie completed her apprenticeship with Bill and Dana Milton and is now employed as a livestock manager on another Montana ranch, which also practices good land ethics within their operations. We end our time with Bill back out on the rangeland, and I ask him about yet another project that he's involved with. Many of Bill's involvements are initiatives that work to increase the ability of current and new generation ranchers to productively remain on the land and be able to practice sustainable land management. One of these is a program led by Montana organization Western Sustainability Exchange, in partnership with another organization, Native Energy. The program focuses on ways that ranchers can access the emerging carbon markets, or markets where companies make payments to offset their own carbon footprint. Ranchers could then, ranchers could then receive payment for managing healthy grassland soils, which sequester carbon from the atmosphere. There's a lot out there, and I think everybody's trying to figure out what eventually is going to fall out as being authentic and true and useful. And so, yeah, the, the, basic, uh, the basic component here is provide some minimal infrastructure support so that you could do grazing more efficiently. And they are developing these algorithms to hopefully develop exactly what this carbon sequestration levels might be. They're banking on the fact that well-managed grasslands are capturing and storing carbon, not just sort of cycling it and doing simple feedback loops. And so they have a number of ranchers now and uh, in which they're doing baseline soil samples. And this seems to be a target spot they, they would like to focus on in the west is uh, central eastern Montana. There is certainly accumulating data that uh, cattle properly moved across the range can reduce bare ground, improve diversity, and increase organic matter, improve water infiltration. And, and, and all these benefits accrue to them as well as to wildlife. And so if we're conscious of all those moving pieces and all those things that are dependent on the range, it's all going to be a win. I'm really interested in this idea of how a number of ranchers can pull their land together and this process together so a company can come and say, wow, we, we can actually create a contract uh, with ranchers that are managing over a million acres. And so then the, the scale and the story of that scale of, of a lot of ranchers working together cooperatively, which benefits them because they can put together better contracts uh, and it's a better story versus all of us individually trying to, to do a contract with a company. I, don't, I think that's not very efficient. And we see, you know, we see companies that are doing just that and it just poses a question to me as well, why don't we do that? We could do it as well and it could even be more interesting. And, or family ranchers. If I had to choose between a pile of enterprises versus a pile of family ranchers, I'd probably tend to go toward the family ranchers. <laughs> so actually, what the ranchers are trying to do is add value to their management. We recognize that the livestock enterprise in and of itself uh, is a low margin enterprise. And you know, if, if we can figure out other ways, other tools to add value, people use easements and they get paid for easements. Uh, if we could do something with soil, you know, we're working on some bird projects uh, and we're getting some resources from, from that. Uh, if we could just 
demonstrate good range practices and can show through monitoring. You know, we can get some resources through NRCS and, and some other NGOs. Basically, there's a whole bunch of people out here, agencies and NGOs, that just want to protect the resource and protect large intact landscapes. If ranchers can figure out a way to cooperate and integrate all those programs to create that outcome and get those resources to improve their infrastructure and to me ideally is how could you combine and leverage all these different things people want into some maybe regular annual payment that where we're getting paid for the management of land and, and not just trying to get the return through the harvesting of grass and, and, and selling of livestock. Thank you so much to Bill Melton and Natalie Berkman for sharing with us. You can find links to everything mentioned in this episode, including the Muscle Shell Watershed Coalition, Win It Aces, the Quivera Coalition's new agrarian program, the Range Monitoring Group, and more in this episode's show notes. We encourage you to check out the other three podcast episodes, which hear from other voices in the central Montana Plains region. Also check out lifeintheland.org, where you can find the film featuring these voices from central Montana, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you to Peyton Butler and Katie Sprout for editing assistance with this episode, and to Cassie Heron for assistance in the field. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of several Plains tribes who interacted with and stewarded all elements of these lands for thousands of years and continue this stewardship today on and off tribal reservation lands. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories number four action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others and submit your own for us to share. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mindlands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Win at Aces, The Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also, a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening.